it's so encouraging to uh, be at a church that is just saturated in the Word and, uh, and hearing that come through in uh, the singing, in the prayers, excuse me for that. Um, it's really, really deeply encouraging. So I'm going to pray uh, for us um, that you hear God's Word today. Um, and, uh, and that all of the little Irish words that I say that are, that's difficult to understand, that God interprets that for you. Um, <laughs> there might be a few, but I'll try to flag them along the way. Um, how about we pray? Um, Father God, I just uh, thank you so much that you are a God who saves. We thank you so much that you are a God who remembers your promise to Abraham. And we thank you so much, Lord, that that we are recipients of that in and through Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you enrich and enliven our hearts as we remember who you are today and what it is that you have done. Amen. Back in 2004, I was climbing in the French Alps with my girlfriend, Catherine, who is now uh, my wife. She was an experienced climber. She was actually an instructor, and, uh, and I was not. I, I did climb, uh, but I'd never climbed anything quite as massive as this before. And, and particularly, this climb was a very, very different climb than what I'd been used to. Uh, normally, I was used to big handholds where you can you know, get your feet and your hands in there. But this was more like a bit of slab. And it was just slanted away, and you had very little things to hold on to and to maybe fit your little toe onto. And, uh, and I didn't want to uh, basically feel embarrassed in front of my girlfriend at, the point, at that time. Um, so I decided that even though um, I was going to struggle at this, that I was going to climb it anyway. In fact, because I'm Irish, it was even more dumb than that. I chose to lead climb this climb. And what that means is that you're the person who takes up the rope and takes up the gear that you put into the wall that becomes your safety point so that if you fall, you don't die. And what that means is that you end up actually climbing maybe five, six, seven meters beyond the safety point that you put in. And that means that if you fall, you're going to fall a good 16 meters, and it is going to hurt a lot. But because I wanted to kind of, you know, let my uh, future wife know that I was, I was up for it, I climbed up this climb. And it went well. It was, it was actually really awesome at first. If there were phones back then, it would have been like Instagram moments and whatever at the side of the rock. Until I got to this point where the rock stopped being like that and started being like this, and I had my hand like this on one tiny bit of rock, my big toe like this, my other one like that, and I was in this position on the side of the rock, and all of a sudden my feet started cramping up and I couldn't move. And guess what? I was a good six meters beyond my safety point. And I'm stuck there, no idea what to do. I couldn't do anything, so I just cry out for help. I'm like, Cathra, Cathra. And she's like, what's wrong, what's wrong? I'm like, I can't move, I can't make it. And she's like, yeah, you can, just do this and this. And she's trying to tell me how to get out of this predicament. And I couldn't do it. And I'm shouting down. I'm like, help me, I'm going to end up falling. And do you know what she, her response was? If you fall, I need to leave my gear behind, all of this expensive equipment on the side of the wall. She said, so you can't fall. 
And I'm like shouting back and forth. I'm like, just let me drop then. Just let me die. It's okay. And I'm like freaking out. And whilst kind of still stuck like this, trying to shout down at her. And, um, <laughs> and, at, and at that point, I just realized um, that I was in deep trouble. And the only thing I could do was to cry out for help. Now, thankfully, Catherine did love me enough and had compassion on me. But there did come a moment where she had to choose which was her prized possession. You know, was it the gear and the wall and all of the expensive equipment or me? Now, I'm here today because she chose me, and I'm very, very grateful. And then she very graciously climbed the climb. She just, like, floated up the wall, gathered back all of her gear, came down and said, what was the problem, you know? <laughs> now, what has that got to do with Exodus 3 and 4? What's that got to do with Exodus 3 and 4? Well, where we're up to in the story of the people of Israel is that Israel are 100% stuck on the side of the wall. They can't move. They can't do anything to get out of this predicament that they find themselves in. They're enslaved um, with Egypt, this ancient Near East superpower. They're being persecuted slaughtered. They're feeling hopeless, and all they can do is cry out for help. And and the question is, when we come to this part of Exodus, in fact, the whole of Exodus, is what is it that God is going to do? Is he going to just say, oh, well, it's okay? Is he going to respond like Cathra? How's he going to respond to his people's slavery? How's he going to respond to their cries? Now, ultimately, we know, don't we, that God rescues his people. That's a big part of what the first section of Exodus is about. The second section is about their response to that. But as we zoom in to these two chapters, and what we see is something a little bit more subtle. Now, you will get to the detail of what's going on here in terms of the technicality of how God rescues Egypt through Moses and and Aaron. But we're not going to look at that so much today because that's going to keep on coming up. What we see when we look at Exodus 3 and 4 is that God's first response is that he remembers his promise, then that he reveals his presence... And finally, that he reminds his people of their position. That's the three things that we're going to look at today. First thing, God remembers his promise. Have a look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, which is Moses' summary of what goes on in verse 7 when he actually finally meets God. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out for help because their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. Now, what is it that he remembers? Well, it's his promise. It's the covenant that he made to Abraham where they would have land 
offspring and blessing and God would be their God and they would be his people and that as they lived that out, that they then would be a blessing to others. Now, it's really important for us to grapple with this a little bit because God remembering his promise is actually something that you see the whole way throughout the Bible. And it's an idea that if we get, will give you great confidence that God will remember his promise today, tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and every day until Jesus returns. So what does it mean that he remembers his promise? Well, it could mean that he had forgotten it, couldn't it? Like, where are we up to in God actually coming good on his promise? You know, we know that God sent them to Egypt so that they would escape the famine. And by God's providence, what was meant for evil, he was using for good as he curated what was happening with Joseph in Egypt. And that kind of created a way for them to be there and to be safe. And there was a period of time where in Egypt they were flourishing and they were becoming a multitude. But they were a far way off the promised land, weren't they? It didn't look like they were being blessed all that much. In fact, they had just endured infanticide of their firstborn sons. And in Israel's slavery, they would have been tempted, wouldn't they, to believe that God had indeed forgotten his promise. Uh, You know, and we we kind of hear this response in the Psalms. Psalm 77, for example, starts with, I cry out to the Lord. I, I cry aloud to the Lord. Will the Lord reject forever and never again show his faithfulness? Has his faithful love ceased forever? Now, I don't know about you, but when I have walked through some deep, dark moments in my life, It's so easy, isn't it, to think that God has forgotten. We groan, we cry out. 400 years of being in Egypt is a long time. And interestingly, if you just go back and and look at the end of um, Exodus chapter 2 there again, Moses doesn't say that they cried out to God. Rather, they just groaned. They cried out at their situation, which might be Moses' way of highlighting that Israel had thought that God had forgotten. But I don't think it is. You see, in Deuteronomy 26, verse 7, Moses makes it clear that they were crying out to God. So why is he seemingly leaving that bit of detail out? What's going on? Well, I think it's this. I actually think Moses is intentionally leaving this out, not to emphasize that the people might have forgotten God, but to actually emphasize how God feels about his people, about how he actually responds. It's meant to cause this question, but it's actually meant to emphasize God's response. And how does he respond? Well, he remembers his promise, and we're going to get back to that in a moment. But listen to these words. He heard their groaning. Just think about that for a moment. God hears the groans of his people. 
And he was concerned for them. I actually think the ESV puts it better when he said that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He had a deep, intimate, relational knowledge of the people that he had created and had chosen to be their people. He was concerned. He felt what they felt in a similar way that we feel when we know a loved one is going through a tough time or someone has done a massive injustice to one of our kids but only far greater. Because you see, this God is the God who knit the people of Israel and each and every person together in their mother's womb, and he knew every hair on their heads. MCC, I'm not sure what suffering and pain and challenges you guys have walked through. I'm not sure what you're walking through right now. I'm not sure what you will walk through in the future. Some of you may be feeling that you are in 400 years of hurt in Egypt right now. God hears the groans of his people. He hears the groans of his people. He knows your suffering. He knows it not with a distant disregard, but actually with a close compassion. Do you get that? God hears. Not with a distant disregard for what's going on in the lives of his people, but with a close compassion. Now, we're not told here why um, God allowed them to walk through this suffering. We get a hint of it in Leviticus 19, and you can go and have a look at that later and wrestle with that. But I know for me, when I'm walking through periods like this, this is what I'm looking for. I'm often looking for answers to understand. But actually, as I've walked through some of these moments more recently, not anything like what they were walking through, one of the things that I find a great comfort is that, that God is not just distant, but that he's actually close. That he has compassion, that he hears. And as I was preparing this sermon as well, just that reminder that God is a God who remembers. And he remembers, doesn't he? Because of the ultimate fulfillment in his son. And, and we know that one day all suffering and all pain and all evil and all injustice will one day come to an end because God is a God who remembers. And that's not just global pain. That's not just communal pain. That is individual. It'll be gone. So had God forgotten? Well, no, I don't think there's any indication here or um, wherever, any time that this comes up in the Bible, that we get the impression that God has forgotten. And in fact, here's what seems to happen. It seems to serve, every time we hear that God remembered, it seems to serve as just a little reminder and a way of indicating that God is about to do something significant to bring about the promise that he has always remembered. You get it? So God remembered Noah, Genesis 8.1. God remembered Abraham and he let Lot flee Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed. Zechariah, 
When he comes onto the scene in Luke chapter 1, he's the father of John the Baptist. What does his name mean? His name means God remembered. And Mary's song, when she realizes that she is pregnant with Jesus the Messiah, she sings a song that said that God remembers his mercy. Do you get the pattern? So here, what is it that he's about to do? Well, yes, he's about to rescue his people. But here we see that he's about to reveal his presence. It's interesting, at the start of chapter 3, right, Moses comes onto the scene, and it looks like he's going to be the remarkable thing that God does. But, but he's not really all that remarkable, and he knows it, right? And, and very quickly, the camera just adjusts focus to the background, which is actually the main thing, the burning bush at Horeb. Have a look. There, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, and it did not burn up. Now, I don't know about you, but my temptation is just to brush very, very quickly over that detail. But we shouldn't, because it highlights something very significant about the presence of the Lord. This event, many others like it, theologians call them theophanies, present to us that the Lord is powerful. Now, that's P-O-W-E-R-F-U-L. That's the translation, right? I've always said that word funny. It's never going to change. Powerful. And you'll hear me saying it a little bit over the next, next kind of couple of minutes. Um, now, it, it doesn't reveal the full extent of his power, does it? It, it doesn't, but it shows us something. And Moses even made this correlation in Deuteronomy 4, chapter, or verse 24, when he said, The Lord your God is a consuming fire. That's his description of what was going on here. Now, I didn't grow up in Australia, as you guys know. And that meant that I actually didn't really know the power of fire until I moved here and experienced my first bushfire. I lived down south, and right on the edge of the national park. Fire is powerful, isn't it? It consumes absolutely everything in its path. Yet there is something significant here about this fire and this power. It's controlled. It doesn't consume the bush and it doesn't consume Moses when he approaches. Now, Moses records for us what happens next, that there is an angel, which just means a messenger, but we know from the story that he's talking about God himself, um, that God then speaks to him, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer. Why? Well, it's not just because God is powerful, is it? It's because God is holy. Now, he talks about the ground being holy, but the ground is holy because the presence of the Lord is there, and the Lord is holy. There was nothing special about that particular bit of dirt apart from the fact that God was there. And here's what this means. Now, you probably have heard this word um, before and dug into this maybe even more than I have, but it just simply means two different things. The first one is the secondary thing. It means that, that God is morally pure, that he is absolute purity. He is without sin. He is perfect in every way. 
But the second thing, and and I think this is actually the primary meaning uh, that we get, is that God is separate, that he is distinct, that he is transcendent, and to all that he has created. So holy has got these two meanings. I think we can summarize it by saying that it means that God is sinless and he is separate. Now, there's so much more going on in that. But God is sinless and he is separate. In fact, so much so that this is the only attribute of God, right? Which is given that threefold ascription. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a way of just creating an emphasis on this attribute of God, which basically says that God is really, really, really pure. He is really, really, really perfect. He is really, really, really separate and distinct and different from Moses, from Israel, and from you and I, and every person who has lived since Adam because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is a vast difference, and that is a big problem. But did you notice what happened here? God invites Moses in and onto this holy ground, doesn't he? He invites him close. Moses takes off his sandals, and then actually God does something absolutely astonishing. Have a look. What does he do? God reveals his power. He reveals that he is holy. And then he reveals his name. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And it's at this moment, isn't it, that he realizes whose presence he is in. And Moses was afraid. You see, at this moment, Moses realizes that he is standing before the God who spoke the world into being, the God who created absolutely everything, the God who sustains everything, and that he is holy. And Moses realizes that he is not And he is afraid. He realizes he isn't worthy to come into his presence. And the only reason that he wasn't consumed by the power of God's presence here was not because of Moses' perfection. We already know he wasn't perfect. It's because of a promise. A A promise that is actually bound up in the very name of God himself. A name that means although Moses is standing before a powerful and holy God, that there is something about this God who is safe, who is knowable and wants to be known, and who knows. That's huge, isn't it? You see, Moses would have known that this God was also the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. He would have known that this was the person who had protected the people once they left Eden, even though they had sinned. That this was the God who rescued his people through Noah. That this was the person who revealed himself and came good on his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and indeed to Jacob. You know, as God reveals his presence to Moses through his name, do you know what he's saying? 
He's saying, you can trust me, Moses. Because I am a God who remembers. I am a God who remembers my promises. And Moses kind of still doesn't get it. But, but I think that this story here is really helpful for us. Because God is just saying, you know who I am. And, and, and the name kind of tells you about what he has done, hasn't it? Doesn't it? It's not just a name, it's a description because what God does and who he is is so bound up together. It's kind of similar with us, to be honest. He's saying, you know what I've done. You know how I've acted. You can trust me. You can trust me in what I'm about to do. You can trust the promises that I'm about to give you and give my people. Now, do you realize how astonishing this is? That... A sinless, perfect, and separate God, the God who made the universe, would make himself present and personal to Moses. That this sinless, perfect, transcendent God would make himself personal and present, soon to be to the people of Israel. That this sinless, perfect, separate God, through Jesus, would make himself personal and present to all who would believe in him. That's phenomenal, isn't it? And before God rescues them out of the hands of Egypt, God actually does something else. Now, I know that we haven't dug into all of the story of of Moses here or all of the the details and technicalities of how he does this. And and the reason why I've done that is that that you're going to do that and you're going to see that over the coming weeks in Exodus. And I just think there's a couple of little things that we often brush over and we miss. And and it's this last thing as well, that God reminds his people of their position. Now, he does that through telling some things to Moses that he then relays to the people of Israel. Did you notice? Just scan your eyes back through um, chapter 4. Did you notice how God refers to Israel? Sometimes he says the people... But he refers to them as my people. You see, these people don't belong to Pharaoh. They belong to God. That is their position. And and I think through Moses that God wants to actually remind them of that. But did you notice something else? A, A description or a position of the people that I think is way more powerful than that. Did you pick it up? Have a look at verse 22. When God is instructing Moses what to say to Pharaoh, he says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Now, this is the first time Israel is called a son, and particularly called the firstborn son here. And in the ancient Near East, that really meant that you were the person or the people who had preeminence and priority. It means that these people were special to God and that they would be the people, a bit like the firstborn son in that culture, who would receive the best of the inheritance. That they would be the people who had responsibility that they would be the people who would ultimately carry on the name of their forefathers. And, and, and that's who Israel are. 
That's what's going on. They are God's special people. They are the firstborns. And I hope that you get that this happens before the Ten Commandments. Right? That doesn't come for another little bit. And and that's because the people's status or who they are is not a result of their perfection or anything that they have done. It's just simply a result of God being a God of the promise. Of the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And as a result of that, he will rescue them out of Egypt. He will bring them into the inheritance of the promised land. But first, God needs to lead them out of Egypt through Moses. So how does God respond? Well, he remembers his promise, doesn't he? And because he remembers the promise of the covenant, like what's going on here for Moses and indeed for Israel, when we hear that, I think that means for us in Jesus that we can remember or that we can trust that he will continue to remember his promise. You see, the Israelites never had what we had. We knew that God didn't just come down to rescue Egypt from slavery, from being persecuted. We actually know that he came down in the person of his son, don't we? That God himself actually entered in to rescue people, not from Egypt, but from the slavery of sin and death. As a fulfillment of this promise, by the way, that we see fulfilled over and over and over again and more fully revealed as the story of the Bible unfolds. But for those of us who trust in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, you stand here not because of your perfection, but because God is a God who remembers his promise. And that means you can trust him. That the promises that he has made to never leave you nor forsake you. The promises that he has made to make you more like his son Jesus. The promises that he has made to actually one day bring you into glory. To be with him where you will worship him forever. Will come to fruition. Isn't that amazing? But God is also powerful, isn't he? His presence is powerful and and transcendent. He is holy. He is distinct. He is different. Is that how you view God? Do you see, if it wasn't for God remembering his promise, we could never have attained perfection. We never could have got to the point where we could actually come into the presence of God. You know, Moses was invited in. He had to take off his sandals. We are invited in through Jesus and his perfection. But I think because of that, sometimes we forget, don't we, that God is holy, that he is powerful, that he is transcendent. I know that I do. I can now call God Father. 
We no longer need to make sacrifice over and over again for sin the way that the people of Israel did, which is just a constant reminder that God was separate and distinct from them, even though he dwelt among them. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus was the one sacrifice once for all. And I think sometimes as a result, we forget that God is holy. MCC, does the way that you live your life reflect that you believe that God is holy? Does your reels on your Instagram or Facebook, if you're on it, how does, what does that reflect about what you believe about God? How does your priorities line up with that? If you were to look at your bank balance, what does that say about what you believe about this God who we follow? Because you see, the New Testament God, the God who we follow that we have access to because of Jesus is the same God as the God that we're talking about here in Exodus. He is still separate, distinct, and holy, but because of Jesus, through his presence, by his spirit, he has come close and personal to us. And our response should be the response that we see in Exodus, and that is to give absolute, full devotion to him. Now, we don't always do that. But what does your life say? How does that reflect what you believe? Then the last thing that we, that we see here, which I, I reckon has just been something so significant in my life, is that God reminds his people of their place or who they are in him. And, and I think um, for me, one of the things that when I, when I read that, I get reminded of the fact that through Jesus, for people who believe in him, for Christians, that we're not just people who are saved, are we? We are people who are brought into the family of God. We become the people of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters in and through Christ. And we actually have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, right? Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 2 Peter 2, 9. We are as prized possession. You know, the people of Israel would go on to kind of work out what those things were or what it means for them to be the firstborn son. And, and they would be reminded over and over again through the sacrificial system. We are reminded by the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we're reminded of our position as sons and daughters in Christ Jesus is so that we might be holy as God is holy. And in 2 Peter 2.9, so that we might declare his praises. Which, guess what? It's a reflection of the promise to Abraham that God would have a people who would bless the nations around them as they lived out who they were. And it's the same for us, isn't it? We are people who respond in worship and devotion to God. So how does God respond? Yeah, he does rescue them, doesn't he? He does, but as we look at the detail, we see that he remembers his promise. We see that God reveals his 
presence, that he is holy and he is powerful, but yet he creates a way for Moses to be invited in and for his people to be his people. And then finally, he reminds his people of their position, that they are sons, that they are his prized possession, that they are the firstborn. Let me pray. Father God, I just um, I want to thank you for the subtle details that we see in Exodus. Holy Spirit, would you remind us of who we are in you? Would you help us to believe in the places where we don't believe? And would you help us to live lives that, that follow and reflect who it is that you are and what it is that you have done, not just for the people of Israel, but for us in and through your son, Jesus. Amen.